Welcome to the self Reg Show. I'm Susan Hopkins, and it is my great honor to be here and launching a brand new podcast. This is the place where we're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about stories. We're going to look at some strategies, and we're going to be spending a lot of quality time uh, with Stuart Shanker, who is the father of self-reg, which is both a process, it's a five-step process, and uh, can equally be used as a framework uh, that we can use in all sorts of areas, whether you're an educator, a parent, uh, a person that is dreaming about uh, a world where where there's a lot more well-being. And so we're going to get started today. So welcome, Stuart Shanker. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here with you. I always like looking at your bookcase and seeing all the self-reg books behind you there as well. Today, we are going to be starting, Stuart, um, with, with thinking about this idea of there's no such thing as a bad kid. The very first time I ever heard you speak in person, now this is in person, when I was a person sitting in the audience, I can still see the seat I was sitting in. You gave this talk that was moving, inspiring, hopeful, uh, you know, uh, forced uh, many of folks. There was about 500 of us in the room trying to figure out uh, kids and families and all the things we could do to support in the transitions, the early years and into school. And you ended your talk with a moment that I could have heard, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. And I still remember how it made me feel. And it was this, this quote that probably you are best known for. There's many, and we'll unpack more in the future. Um, but it was this idea that there was no such thing as a bad kid. And you didn't just say it. You found a way to make us all feel it. Can you tell me a little bit about the background? Where did that even come from? You know, why? what does it mean and why does it matter to us? You know, it's interesting. I, I realized um, you know, when I was thinking about today's show, that I've never actually told this story. I mean, I, I sort of touched on it, but I've never told what really happened. And it's a good story. Uh, it happened around almost 20 years ago. I was uh, giving um, some workshops and lectures in Whitehorse. And um, this man came up to me after one of the talks and he was a school principal uh, in a school a couple of hours south of Whitehorse and um, told me, you know, he, he, he loved the ideas of self-reg, but what he really wanted to know is if he could get me to come down to his school, that he had this one kid that he was very worried about. And he told me a little bit about what was going on, and I agreed, um, partly because uh I wanted to get out of Whitehorse for a day. Um, so the next day, he drove me down. The only thing I can... I, I remember a couple things about him. I don't remember his name. But I remember he was from Texas. And he had moved up to the Yukon uh, um, to take a job as a school, as a primary school principal. He was a wonderful man. And it was a good ride. And uh, we didn't really talk at all about the kid that I was about to meet. Um, he wanted me really to be unprepared. So we get to the school and uh, I'm sitting in his office and he comes in with this kid. And all I knew about him was that he was in grade three. 
so he was 10 or 11, and uh, I knew nothing else. I didn't even know um, what, had a, what was the cause of all this concern. And this kid who came into the office shocked me. He was huge. He was not quite as tall as me, but only a couple of inches shorter. Um, he was overweight. He was a big kid. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sort of processing that this is a 10-year-old um, who, you know, looked massive. And my immediate reaction was I became very anxious. And at this time, I was still going through my uh, training in psychotherapy with understanding Greenspan. And so I had already learned that the, the first step was to focus on what I was feeling. And I realized, which I did, and I realized I was scared. Um, I was scared both by the size of the kid and the fact that there was absolutely no expression on his face. Um, so the overall effect was uh, some part of me was registering, was processing him as a threat. And this is a problem because if I'm in a threat state when I'm with a kid, it really colors my thinking. It blocks, it blocks uh, your awareness. It blocks your empathy. And it also skews you a little. Um, because your threat system has been activated, um, you will look for reasons to support that system, like, you know, to justify that he is a threat. So the very first thing I did as he was getting settled was turn off the threat, turn off my, and remind myself that, you know, whatever, you know, however imposing a figure he might have been, He's a 10-year-old. And so in order for us to, in order for us to, you know, have any kind of a connection, I had to be in that sort of calm state where um, A, I could hear him, I could listen to him, and B, uh, when I spoke to him, there was no anxiety coming through my own voice. And so I took those first few moments just to get grounded again. And then the principal started to tell me what this was all about. And what it was all about was um, he had been uh, hanging around the junior school. The junior school was um, attached at one end of this primary school. Uh, so he had been hanging around there uh, watching the kids for a while. And it had made um, the various teachers anxious. Um, and then one day he had beat up a little kid. And so uh, he was now, uh, he was now, you know, forbidden from going anywhere near the junior school. Um, but also um, uh, everyone was worried about whether or not it was safe to have him stay in the school, except the principal. And this principal was cut from a different piece of cloth. And he wanted to know, and he, 
the thing he had picked up from my from the lecture he'd attended was I had been talking about asking why. And he said to me, the reason I came up to you afterwards was I was hoping maybe you could help me asking why, trying to figure out what was going on in his mind. And so we started to talk to the kid. And, you know, the very first question, you know, after we'd established some sort of uh, a relationship, um, you know, I asked him, why had he, uh, why had he hurt the little guy? And his answer was, I don't know. And so we pursued that little for a little while. Now, you could have heard that and you could have said, well, you know, he's just trying to, he's trying to escape punishment. He's trying to avoid responsibility for his act. But I wondered if he really didn't know. Um, and I said, uh, did you feel bad about it afterwards? And he did, he said he didn't feel anything. Um, and um, I, what I was really, uh, you know, my biases were, did he take some sort of a predatory pleasure in hurting a little kid? And so, you know, I was trying to tease out whether or not he enjoyed actually hurting the kid. And it soon became clear that, no, there was no pleasure involved. And I was fairly convinced that there was no awareness. He really didn't know what had happened. And that was important. And remember that, you know, the looks can be deceiving. You know, you see this, what looks like a man. And so you immediately assume that, uh, he would have been fully aware of what he did and that he had some sort of, you know, malign uh, motivation. But what if it wasn't like that? What if he was just a 10-year-old who did something, was now in trouble for it, big trouble, and he knew that, and he really didn't understand what was going on, didn't understand why he'd done it, and so on and so on. One of the things we know is that there is a circuit, and I want to do just a bit of science here, okay, Susan? So there's yes, a please. circuit. There is a circuit deep, deep, deep in the brain, um, and it's called the rage circuit, uh, and uh, and that you capitalize that. So it's in a, a very small part of the midbrain called the periaqueductal gray, and we have this circuit. Our circuit in humans is homologous with the same circuit in mammals. So we've been able to study, scientists have been able to study this circuit um, in, in uh, rodents. And we've learned an awful lot about what triggers it um, and, uh, and what's going on when this circuit gets activated. So we're talking now about something at the bottom of the neural axis. And what we now know is that this is, there is no pleasure associated with this circuit. In other words, how do we know that? Well, we know it because if you have a, um, if you have a 
room or site where rats have their uh, their rage circuit uh, triggered, activated, they will avoid that site from then on. They will do anything they can to avoid it. So it's a very aversive, unpleasant sensation. And by the same token, if we have another site right beside it, where we trigger a different uh, midbrain structure called the ventral tegmental area, um, that triggers dopamine, which rats love. And they'll go back to that site over and over and over. Okay. So we know that rage is not associated with any sort of pleasure. And then the question that scientists had was, what triggers it? What triggers rage? This circuit, and here's the key, that lies deep beneath the threshold of awareness. We call it a non-conscious process. So we have no control over this. It is triggered without our, our meaning. And what we wanted, what scientists wanted to know was, what triggers it? What causes it? Okay, there's a couple of things that cause it. Um, restraint. Restraint is a big one. Um, if you restrain a child, and now, you know, hopefully at some point, Susan will introduce you to the work of Guy Williams. We know that restraint, <laughs> restraint triggers rage, triggers this non-conscious circuit. We know that um, if an animal is seeking food or water, energy or water, uh, and you block it, that will trigger, trigger rage. And we know that isolation, lack of social contact, also triggers rage. And when we started to talk with this kid, all the pieces started to come together for me because he had no friends. All of the kids in grade three were scared of him. To complicate matters just a little bit, um, he came from a very dysfunctional home environment and I suspect was being physically abused. Not sexually, but physically hit. And he, his mentality was that of a six-year-old. So when we look at his developmental curve, because of, because of the lack of nurturing, because of the lack of friendships, he was at the same level, maturity level, as the kindergarten kids. And what he was doing was he was um, seeking and we have a different part of the brain that, that, that controls us. He was seeking companionship. That's, what, that's why he was hanging around the kindergarten, the junior school. Um, he couldn't get it. Nobody would associate with him in grade three or above. Uh, so he was going to where he felt comfortable. And, of course, it was scary. It was scary for the little guys. And so I guess what happened was, uh, my assumption was that one day um, he had gone a little further 
um, in approaching the kids, not just watching, but approaching. They ran away from him. And perhaps one of the kid, the kid that he beat up, uh, 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 you know, had his own rage circuit. And that's why the fight occurred. So um, after all this, I debriefed with the, with the principal. And, you know, I made it clear that this wasn't any kind of a clinical interview. This was just a self-reg why. And my guess was that he had very high level of anxiety. Uh, and that kind of screws up our ability to read other people's emotions, their facial expressions. Um, and he was very lonely. And, and his rage system was kindled. And what that means was, what that means is that um, it's easily triggered. Now, you could hear all that, and I'm going through all this with the principal, and you could hear all that, and you could say, oh, well, that's, you're describing uh, a powder cake. I mean, this is a kid that, you know, like it or not, if you're right, um, and and he's got this kindled system, this kindled rage circuit. That means he could go off at any time. Maybe maybe I'm going to be. Maybe my teachers will be in danger, or other students, or but not this principal. This principal. This was a guy who wanted to help this kid have a good life. And so he did a bunch of things and we brainstormed, but basically my job here, I want to be very clear about this. I was just a sounding board at this point. What he was doing was he was going through um, different things he could do to help the kid and asking me, you know, what did I think of this? What did I think of that? But at no point was I the one driving this, you know, driving this process. He was, he was the one that was brainstorming using me as, you know, to bounce off ideas. So here's what he did. He, um, first of all, uh, he made his office a safe refuge for the kid. And the idea was that whenever he felt, you know, a little bit off, however, you know, whatever it was, come to the office, you can sit quietly here. He was worried about the kid getting proper food. And so he instituted that the kid would come and get a bowl of uh, porridge as they happened. I remember that. Uh, but also they had a basket of treats for the kids, uh, you know, like uh, granola bars, stuff like that. And he was worried that he's a big guy. So, he, you know, he, maybe he gets hungry a lot. Maybe he needs a lot of food. Uh, so um, the instruction was, you know, if you're hungry, go get something to eat from the basket. You don't have to ask, just go get it. Um, he was, I mentioned how he was delayed. He was also delayed academically. And so the principal arranged for him to get remedial help in both reading and arithmetic and math. And finally, this principal was himself a wrestler. And so every night they would, um, they would uh, meet and he taught the kid the techniques of wrestling. And I suspect that, um, you know, 
this is really good for the kid. The principal thought he was doing it as a way of burning off energy. I thought it was a way of giving the kids skin-to-skin contact. Okay, so that's that's a, a, an interesting story. Um, uh, you know, I, I watched all this and was, left that uh, little town and just so inspired by what this guy was prepared to do. But then a couple of months later, uh, I can't remember how much, but let's say three or four, I get an email from the principal and he said, you're never going to believe this. You remember so-and-so? Yeah, of course. Well, he has now become the protector of the junior of the junior school. So the kids adore him and they're always hanging on to him. And he makes sure that nothing, no one hurts them or harms them. And if there's a fight, he settles things down. Um, And he said he's become, it's like, it's this transformation. And that's the moment when I read that email, when I came up with, there's no such thing as a bad kid. So what's going on with a kid that there's a bunch of lessons that I learned from this. First of all, how my own threat response can bias my perceptions, can block asking why. But deeper than that was the realization that all these kids that are getting in trouble all have a story. And I don't know what the story is, but I do know that any interbrain that is steeped in self-rank can transform that trajectory. And that's what this was all about. What this is all about was not just, not just inspiring people to change a child's trajectory, but to transform their perception of children, to see that, that no matter what they're doing, they're just a kid. And there's not a single kid who is struggling in whatever way. And it doesn't just have to be the kind of scenario I'm, I'm uh, outlining here, although this has become more common in the last couple of years. But any kid who's struggling, there's something going on. And we may have to dig down. We may have to go down into the red brain. Or in self-reg, we talk about going now down into the gray brain. And if we can get down there, and if we're patient and open-minded, what's going to happen is the process of growth, no matter what's blocking it, and here the growth is emotional and intellectual, that will be triggered. And so that was essentially, at that moment, I realized that this is the birth of a movement. We got to get this. We got to get this message out. So that's the story, Susan. I always think there's it's impossible for you to tell me a story I haven't heard before because uh, for those no, that, that study and take courses with us, there's a lot of stories, right? But I have never heard that story. I might have heard little inkling of it, but I certainly have not heard that detail. And, you know, there, there's so many directions I would like to go. And I'm just going to say to all of you out there viewing you know, ask the questions, put your comments out, you know, share and, and find ways to reflect. There is 
we could unpack that one 20 minute story and and turn it into a probably a, a two month self-reg course. So go to the courses. I, I strongly suggest Foundations uh, One is a, is a great starting place if you're interested um, in unpacking further. But I'm going to jump on to just a couple of things that you shared. So one of the things that I heard, first of all, I love the 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 principle, you know, it's interesting if you if you know. If you are listening to this and this is you, <laughs> reach out and say hello. We'd love to we'd love to hear from you. But that very idea of sending you there, taking you there, and inviting you to come in the first place, because it's not inviting you to say, uh, "Come." You know, sometimes you get invited to come in and yeah, let's see you do this kind of thing, right? You know, which happens if anybody that's ever been a specialist working in any kind of classrooms where where people struggle, and they meanwhile they really want to help help the children, but the mindset is there that that this you know this is a behavior problem and this is not something that's outside of of my realm to solve but that wasn't the case here and what you called what you described in the beginning as um you know wanting you to be unprepared was actually a gift he wanted you to arrive with a preconceived judgments yes. you know and we to be really careful on Stuart talked about this not being clinical. This is actually a process for everybody. This is not for others to do. This is for you and me and every single one of us. It's a universal approach and a way of 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 asking why and why now. But he wanted you to come and not have some of these labels that can stick to kids like this. Like I've heard yes. the labels violent, right? And you know, it makes people uncomfortable when I ask them not to use that about a, a child. And, 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 but those labels can stick and they carry a story of their own. I'm not saying to, to, um, you know, soft drop anything. You'd say what happened. He punched the other kid. Okay. He punched the other kid. That that's different than this sort of blanket label that, that colors everything that we see And my heart goes out for this child. I don't know if those watching as they heard the story and listened, you know, and there's elements we know and things we don't know. But no matter what, each one of us, as Stuart said, has a story and you could feel, you know, you're feeling that story. So that's my next question, Stuart. When we think about this, you definitely sparked enough for us to realize. Um, and again, if you any of you questioning this, please, there's courses and, you know, you're not going to get it in a half hour talk, but you can dive deeper. We get all and books. There's all kinds of great ways you can learn um, with us. But you sparked enough science that we know this is definitely about science, uh, but it's also about uh, you know, what I would say often is the language is used as the view of the child. Which one is it? Is it or or is it something different altogether when we want to begin to think about what no, you know, there is no such thing as a bad child means? What what do we do with that? And what's sort of the anchor in that truth? So um, as people will learn, if they come and take one of our courses or start to read, we are in the midst of this extraordinary scientific revolution. Uh, we are in the midst of understanding something like what I've talked about today, the rage circuit, this tiny little button at the bottom of the brain. Who knew? And so the two aspects that, that Susan just mentioned, how we see a child and what the science is telling us, they are so tightly woven together. And our job in self-reg is to take this science and to ask, begin asking, how does this change how we see a child? And our mission is it's to transform how we see a child based on the, this late, latest science. 
but also to transform how we see ourselves, how we see our friends, our parents, how we see the sorts of you know social and political problems that we're seeing today. This is this is transformational. Um, you know, I gave this lecture long time ago, and um, in it, what I said was, we do this work to help every single child, but we do this work to help ourselves and our society. So this is a big deal. You know, and as I as I, I think about it, um, for, you know, this young fellow, that definitely you talked about having no friends. So we think about this idea of, of needing, we all need a sense of belonging, but also of purpose, you know, and finding your way into uh, being the protector, the big brother um, of, right. of these That's kids. Right. right. And then we're linking to identity, who you are, how, how is it, you know, how is your identity as the protector and how, where does that shape things, right? The idea of finding something that both were, had an interest in, which was, you know, the wrestling look. And if you, if all of those, if any of you are out there, sometimes wrestling is right now, it's in our news for not, for not, for not lovely reasons, Skin to touch. Do not be afraid of that word. You know the 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 idea of touch as as a and I mean healthy touch. And I know that there's all sorts of boundaries and union people. I know, <laughs> and you're right. We have to be very very careful. But I oftentimes just touching a hand of my daughter when she's coming out of a panic attack. What, you know, and knowing when to and when not to. So I also heard this story of what we talk a lot about, which is Coreg and somebody that believes in you and, and sees beyond, right? So there's so much here. And we need to remember uh, one of the gifts of self-reg, I think, is that, yeah, we have to we have to unpack what we see in children and youth and what we're trying to understand and whether we're working on academics or, you know, what we might call uh, behavior or morals or character, you know, any of these things, we reframe them. We flip them on their ear, just so you know, <laughs> right? But we also have to have to come to terms with the fact that we've been marinating in this kind of self-control, you know, these mindsets that everything is in the individual, in, in uh, you know, the definitely the, the culture, my culture and growing up and, you know, the, the message was work hard and it was all within you. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and how do we see differently? But we also have That's to great. notice that maybe we didn't see it right in the past. And how do we do that without our own threat response systems going up and us needing to protect, you know, all these things that I, that I did or thought, or, you know, conclusions I jumped to in the past. No, self-right gives you a way of understanding why and why now, right? That's like your brain body systems are kicking in and there's a reason. And when we understand, we can move past it with, you know, compassion and, and that true upstream, like to me, it's more than just upstream. It's like, wait a minute, there's a whole, there's a whole complexity layer here. That's, that's hopeful. So I have a question for you, Stuart, and this is a harder one. And I, I warned you ahead of time that this was coming. So I give you a little, a few moments to think about it. And it's, it's one that bothers me and stays with me um, because I am asked it, you know, when I talk about this sort of idea of no such thing as a bad kid. So the very first thing is that, um, you know, most people that resonates with, and if we find ourselves, um, most, for most people that comes very easily for most of the kids. And then there's that kid. Yeah, but he knew he looked at me and smiled. He grinned. 
you know, they told me it was fun. I wanted to hurt them, right? They, you, so it's, it, it's, it's, it, and we have to stay with that and mull that and notice our own response, right? But we, you know, it's one thing to have it come up around a kid. Sometimes I get asked some pretty hard questions. Is there ever a time when that's not true, that there's no such thing as a bad, you know, kid? Let's just say as an example. So what do we do? Is there like an outside edge where we where we say, yeah, this doesn't apply there? <laughs> you know, and 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 then what? Okay, so uh, let me just answer by telling everyone that uh, we are going to be uh, having a Shanker talk in November, uh, and it's going to be on the topic of grappling with evil which is something I have grappled with uh, my entire life. But uh, for today, I'm going to give a very brief answer to Susan. No, <laughs> there is never such a time. And so one of the things you have to learn when you do self-reg, there's various names for this. Uh, it's called confabulation. It's called the interpretation theory. One of the things that happens is a kid has already been trained to see themselves as in charge of their behavior, as an agent, as um, rational. Uh, and we're always asking a kid from a very young age, why did you do this? And the kid's always going to answer. There's a very interesting uh, corollary to this story about this child's rage circuit. I started off telling you, he couldn't answer the questions, why? He didn't know. His, his, his gray brain had done this, and he was as perplexed as um, anyone else. So we start to interpret, we start to come up with a reason to, to explain my actions. Um, and in those cases that Susan's just described, there's an awful lot going on in the stories that the child is telling himself and you, an image that he wants to project. Um, and so what he is doing is he is projecting an explanation for something that he truly doesn't understand himself. Um, how do we deal with, how do we deal with these kinds of the behaviors that Susan described really well? Uh, we ignore them because they don't mean anything, uh, except, I mean, psychologically, they're very interesting. Um, that this is an ego defense and you have to take one of our courses to learn about ego defenses. Ego defenses are ways of managing stress. And here, the stress is the stress created by two things. One, his gray brain doing something that he really wasn't in control of and two, getting in trouble for it. It's a lot of stress. And so the, uh, the interpretation that his blue brain gives is, well, I'm in charge because I'm a tough guy or whatever. 
And what we want to do is we want to get past that. And we want to figure out why was his rage circuit or whatever the circuit, and there's, there are at least seven major circuits that we look at in self-reg. Rage is just one of them. Why was it triggered? Why was it kindled? And there's a very, uh, there's a very important scientific explanation about why stress, being overstressed, coming from a dysfunctional family, coming, um, uh, um, scaring other people without knowing why. There's a lot of reasons why this kid was overstressed. But what we want to do is we want him to become a protector of other kids. Remember, that's our goal here. Our goal is to change his trajectory. Our goal with that kid with the glint in his eyes, whatever is, we want to take this child and turn him into someone who loves his life, someone who is a source of, of, of positivity in his own actions and in how he benefits others. We want to change the direction in which he's going. But we're not going to be able to do that if we're judgmental. We're not going to be able to do that if we punish. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to get him back into that state where he can begin to process what it means to be a, project, a protector of little children, what it means to be someone that others truly admire. We can't get there until we've, until we've got him in a state, and I'll just use the technical term called homeostatic balance. That's our first step. So we have five steps in suffering. Susan's already told you the first. The first thing we do is reframe his behavior. We see that it's either caused by something in his subcore, it's basically caused by something below the surface of intentionality. Then we, we know that this is caused by stress, excessive stress. So now what we want to do is we want to figure out why. What are the stresses? How can we reduce those stresses? Then the fourth step, what we want is for this kid, to have some place like that principal's office where he can feel calm. Probably the first time in his life that he's felt calmness. And when we talk about calm, we mean a brain that's calm as well as a mind. And then finally, we need to restore. We need to, we need to, we need to refill the gas tank. We need to reestablish human connections. When we've done those five steps, now we can begin to address crafting a new pathway in life, a positive pathway in life. So that's a long answer to what I said at the beginning. My original answer was no. Well, and it's really interesting because it, as long as we see it as intentional, willful, you did it on purpose, you know, it, it, then that's the boundaries of what's possible. Uh, you know, is our is our own openness to to what we're what we're seeing right. in front of us. And I love. I had somebody once uh, challenge me on this, and you know, the the truth is about the idea that there being stress behavior uh, versus misbehavior, which is another topic we'll talk about someday. But is there such a thing as actual willful misbehavior? Uh, you know, and we we explore that. You talk about that and give examples of that. But I sure 
would rather be wrong and assume that uh, what I'm seeing is a stress behavior and that there's a way more for me to understand. I don't need to understand every little detail. I'm not a neuroscientist. I would rather be wrong on that way than the other way around where a poor, you know, a child or a youth is, you know, totally misunderstood. And then I become part of the injustice, right? I don't want to be that person in, in a kid's story. Right. So as you're talking, Stuart, I'm hearing a lot of language that people who know are very familiar with behaviorism or behaviorist approaches or, you know, these some of these things that are happening in in our uh, programs and so on that we use in parenting and school. And they might be thinking they're hearing that because you are, um, you know, you're talking about changing trajectories and you're talking about ignoring behavior. And yet I know, I just want to say what I, what I think I know and see your responses. When you're saying ignoring behavior, it's not in a behaviorist way. It's not, you know, it's not, you're not trying to extinguish something. You're, and uh, you're trying to, you know, you're not getting caught up on the surface level of stuff. Like that idea that behavior is communication, which we've been talking about for decades. No, it's like, no, it really is communication, but I don't know what, it's not just saying, Someone's trying to avoid something. If, if they are, why? It's going way, way, way deeper. What more can I understand here? And to not have that be personal, that that is, you know, everything is a choice. You need to make better choices. You need to try harder. You need to be more like your older brother, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing, right? So am I right on, on, on the flip on that idea of choice or the whole idea that trajectories are, we're shaping trajectories? Uh-uh-uh. In self-reg, we're, we're shaping, shaping what Stuart talked about at the end. We're doing what we can to affect the state, the underlying state, a sense of safety, and all of these sorts of things that are that are all a part of the practice of self-reg. So that the, to see what's possible, and it really is within the, the child, the, the youth, to figure out their own journey. But we're it's almost like taking those shackles off so that the path is is more open. Um, and the possibilities are there. So uh, this is a real, first of all, everything that you said is exactly right. Uh, this is a very big topic and not for today. Um, but um, uh, what you said, Susan, is absolutely right. We are not talking about extinguishing a behavior. What that means is behaviorists try, you know, you have this connection between uh, what's what's called a conditioned stimulus and an unconditioned stimulus. And what you're trying to do is when you extinguish, uh, you're going to have a new connection. You're trying to condition a new, un, a, a new uh, unconditioned stimulus. So you turn it from, from, you know, this triggers whatever to a different, to triggering safety. But what we're looking at is the behavior is like the tip of an iceberg. And when we ask why, we want to know why are we seeing this behavior? And and that's what this is all about. And what we're looking at when we look at the deep levels of the brain is the impact of stress on how we think, how we feel, how we act. And what we find through self-reg is the more we understand what a stress behavior actually is, the causes of that stress behavior, what we find is that we can actually, we can actually mitigate those stresses. We can actually get that child into that state I mentioned, step four, where the child 
when we talk about a child being calm, what we mean is we have counteracted the stress. We have turned off what's called the stress response. This is all complicated stuff. And we explain it all very carefully, step by step. The important point is Susan used a very important word. It's not intentional. These, this is, we're talking about children. And in fact, I'll go a step further and say, I see the same thing in teenagers. Mm -hmm. So what I want is I want them in that state of calmness, in that state where they have, they've restored the smooth functioning of how their brain works and how their body works. Now they're in a position where we can begin to uh, teach them how to do this for themselves, how, to, how they can get themselves into that state. In that state, all the good things happen. And whether those good things are in school or in sports or in music, whatever, it's, it's creating the foundation, nurturing that foundation so that now... Um, this kid, this kid is in a state where they can flourish. That's our big thing. We want the child not, we're, we're not trying to change things. We're trying to nurture things. We're trying to enhance their ability to understand themselves, understand the world they live in and flourish. And stand back and see what's possible. This kid, you know, it, it reminds me of, yeah. of rising above, you know, and be, there's leadership that might not have been, not every, you know, that's not in every person. We're not trying to create this conformity or compliance. It's true. Let us see what's possible. As you spoke, I'm just going to end with my word and then ask you for a final word. But okay. I couldn't help thinking when you were talking about uh, this young fellow and the rage circuit and, you know, how, you know, how it, 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 he, you know, he beats up another child. Like, we don't want that. It's not that we're saying, oh, no problem. You're just overstressed. No, that's not who, who you are. That's not the world we want to be. How we're really actually not just thinking about nice ideas. We're, 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 we're reducing the stigma, which that's the word that's jumped in my mind as I think about other areas, mental health and things where we talk about reducing the stigma. It's, it's trying to understand and, and understand at deeper levels that open pathways. So this sort of thing doesn't have to be the world that our kids are living in, right? And that might sound like a lofty, whoa, but once you begin to understand more of the science and the way Stuart, uh, Stuart brings it all together for us in such meaningful ways, you begin to see the hope that that, that, that having that outside dream is is not out of the realm of possibility. And I'm telling you, I'm going to hold tight to that for every every breath I take because I have to be part of 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 that that solution. I want better That's things for, for everyone, you know. And so that idea of stigma is important. So we're not just asking you to to see that kid differently. You know, I can't. When you talk about the rage circuit, I always think of 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 mama, <laughs> the the mama instincts that come up. And you know, uh, when uh, I don't know about you, but I've had things where I I you know, I would be the one that I could lift the car off my kid <laughs> if she was, I know I would. And I've had moments in, in other areas, but especially around parenting yeah. and protectiveness that something takes over. And sometimes it's a, it is a good thing. Um, but it's like, I feel taken over and, and, and that's, these are the same sorts of circuits, right? There are other times when this happens 
and you know, uh, uh, or connected anyway, you can correct me on the science, but there's something more there. So this isn't just about seeing that kid differently. This isn't about no such thing as a bad, you know, this 10 year old child, this is like, no, this is all of us. This is more than stigma. This is, is, is recognizing it's part of the human condition and, and, and it's there for a reason, even if it gets, you, you know, ignited for, for reasons that, we're never, you know, that, that, that are not healthy and not where we want to go. They, it has a, it has a reason and has things that we can understand. And therefore, when we take the time to do that with that open heart and, and, and open to the science, open to new understandings, open to being wrong about stuff we used to believe opening to, you know, new surprises, that that's what paves the way for change and for action and for things that can make a difference, not just in kids' lives, but ours. So final word is yours, Stuart. Um. I sent Susan uh, an article yesterday, a uh, superintendent in some school board in Missouri, I believe it was, um, has reintroduced paddling students. And the comment that he made was uh, <laughs> that there's a lot of parents that are in favor of this. Uh, but remember, I'm a self-regger. And so I always... I'm going to ask why. Why is he doing this? Why is he justifying this? Why are some parents, some families at least, supporting this? And one of the things that we've seen happen over the last couple of years is there has been, as a result of many factors, not just COVID, but certainly primarily COVID, we have seen an explosion of problems in students. Uh, and so they may be behavioral problems. They may be, uh, they may be mental health problems, anxiety. We've seen, um, uh, I was just uh, reading some stuff that Adam sent me that the, uh, the rate of anxiety disorders in children, um, seven to 19 has doubled. Um, that's an anxiety disorder. That's a big number. Um, 33% of all, of all 19 to 24 year olds have an anxiety disorder. These are huge numbers. Uh, and that's just a clinical sense. If you found anyway, so you get the point, uh, this superintendent, these parents are scared. They're scared the way if I was initially scared by this big hulking kid. And so they don't know what to do. And, and they, you know, this is a, this is a, a reflex. Well, maybe if we go back to the, to the old ways of paddling a child, uh, maybe this will stop the problem. Now, we have so much science that's been done telling us that the harm you do a child when you hit them is pretty much irreparable and it's long-term and it affects their mental health. It affects their physical health. We also know that it affects your health. We know that it affects the health of the teachers and, and the principal himself. And we know that it affects the well-being of all the other kids. So this is a very, very uh, well-researched area. And I realized, you know, as I'm going through all this, I could tell them all this and I would get the same reaction that we got a couple of years ago when we 
when scientists first started talking about global warming. Well, I don't care about your science. And that's uh, a defensive reaction. It's an ego defense. Um, and really what you're doing is you are denying um, something that you find very, very stressful. Uh, and now three or four years later, actually this started in 2016, this, this incredible movement of denying that there was in fact global warming and it was at the various high, very highest levels of uh, uh, political levels in the U.S., Nobody's saying it today. Nobody, I don't hear anybody denying global warming. It just took this brutal weather patterns that they've seen in the American Southwest uh, to stop that, uh, to see glaciers melting, to see um, huge icebergs falling off in Greenland. You know, so, so you know, um, I don't want us to get to that point that, um, you know, you have to wait and see the harm that you've done this kid before you say, oh, well, maybe I should have listened to the science. But I'm a self-rager. And I find as a self-rager that being judgmental doesn't, it doesn't help. It won't help the kids. It won't help their parents who are scared. They are scared about having behaviors that they don't know how to deal with. And that's what self-reg is all about. They haven't got an alternative. Well, now they do. Self-reg will give them that alternative. So now Susan said something two seconds ago that was the key to everything we do. We are understanding, we're seeking understanding so that we can change. This isn't just about understanding why you're seeing these problems, why you've got so many kids now with behavioral challenges. This is about what can I do? And that's what they're looking for. And if they're going to, you know, if they're going to this sort of, you know, Victorian attitude, um, it's because they don't know what else to do. We are giving you that what else. We aren't just telling you something that's inspiring. We are going to teach you step by step what you can do. And the whole point of today was about changing trajectories. And the whole point of today is there isn't such a thing as a bad kid. And that's my last <laughs> Oomph. How's that for a way to end? So thank you for joining us for the Self-Reg Show. This is a Self-Reg pod and it has been funded by the Merit Centre, the organization. Uh, Stuart owns the organization and uh, it is my life's work and we're very passionate about the work we do and we invite you to come uh, have, a have a noodle around, see what information you can find, opportunities to go deeper in the learning. If anything here has sparked you and you're like, yeah, I want to see differently. Yeah, I want to move beyond my belief in spanking or whatever, or suspensions or whatever, whether you're in education, early years, parenting, uh, there is an opportunity for you to learn more, uh, see more, feel differently, grow, grow, uh, uh, join a growing community of self rakers So thank you very much. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Happy self-ragging to you. <laughs> That's great.